Hey, how you doing, Soma? It, it definitely is a pleasure to be here on the last night they will ever ask Dane to do anything involved, involved at, at Soma. So we just, we just witnessed history. It was a good thing. Hey, if you and I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is uh, Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Rocky Peak, and this is a privilege for me to be able to come. I love so much. I got to be a part of someone many, many years ago. One, if you're brand new, which some of you are, again, forgive the room. This room is a mess, but this room needs to be a mess. I want to talk about how old I am real quickly. The very first time I stepped foot into this room was 1997. I was in high school, walked into 1997, And one of the very first things I did as part of my high school ministry was I bled on this carpet because we played. This is the same carpet that has been around. And so our prayers have been answered. This room is finally going to be made, as we affectionately call it, less crappy. So thank, but in the process of that, we're going to be under construction for a little bit. So thank you so much for just putting up in your patience with that. Hey, if you and I haven't had a chance to meet afterwards, I would love to meet you and just say thank you for joining us on a Sunday night. Again, I'm excited about the stories I hear coming out of Soma about what the Lord is doing. We're going to have some fun tonight as we wrap up the Life 101 series. Um, if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. You've got this note sheet called Life 101. On one side, it's got a lot of quotes by other smart people because I don't have this type of genius. On the back, there's a couple of blanks we're going to go through, but really, regardless of whether you follow along or the note sheet or not, I like giving you that tool to be able to write down anything the Holy Spirit might be prompting you to remember. I'm going to start off by praying, wow, <laughs> that's your spiritual gift right there, angel. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to go ahead and start off by prayer, praying for angel's health apparently, and then we're going to jump in. Father, Father, what a gift that we get to come at this, we get to come this evening and get to say that Jesus is real, that Jesus has invaded and has completely changed our lives, that Jesus is equipping us to send him out, to, to send us out, to be reflections of him, to be banner wavers of his name into our world. Father, whatever it is that our evening or our day tomorrow is going to take us, whether it's school, work, whether it's good experiences, bad experiences, we carry your name into the light and into the darkness. And I pray that we honor that responsibility. I pray that we be a people that seek more of you. I pray that we be a people that value your word, your word which is living and active and changes our life. I pray that we be a people that value purity and freedom over the bondage of sin. More importantly, Father, I pray that we be a people that see us the way you see us. You do not see us in defeat. You do not see our failures and our insecurities, which for some of us in here is all we see of ourselves. You see us through the lens of Jesus. You see us through victory. You see us through forgiveness, through the purity, through being washed by the Lamb. And I pray as we open up your word, as we talk again about these priorities in our life tonight, Lord, it's not about me or what I have to say. It's always about your word and what you have to say to us. In your son's name, we all say, amen. 
So I want to start off because a lot of you don't know me. And so I want to share a story from when I was back in college, when I was about 21. See, I've been married for over 10 years, which has been an amazing thing. And so let me take you all the way back to 11 years ago when my wife and I were in college and when we were dating. Now, if you are currently in a dating relationship or if you hope to be at some point in the future, I am going to give you the biggest piece of unsolicited advice that will change your life. Do not, under any circumstances, circumstances walk into a pet store with your significant other. Now, the reason I say that is because you will walk into a pet store and you will feel the temptation to buy some sort of animal as a symbol of your love. This is always a bad idea because we sit there and go, oh yeah, of course that's dumb, but you're going to be in the moment caught up in their eyes looking at their goals. You know what we should do? Get a love guinea pig. That is never going to go well. So do not, don't awe it, Hojin. It's, they're rodents you can buy. Now they're, under no circumstances, if you have to, try to be strong and buy a love goldfish or something because they die within a day. But you're going to be tempted for something bigger. Now, I don't say that because I was immune to this. I say this because of stupidity. See, back when my wife and I were dating, we were down in Orange County on a date in one of the shopping centers, and we went into this pet store, and we fell in love with this beagle puppy, all right? 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 And we look at it, and we sit there and go, oh my goodness, look at that puppy. I've got a great idea. Let's make a horrible decision. And so we walk up to one of the employees of the pet store and we're like, excuse me, how much is the beagle? $1,000. We look at each other going, I have never seen $1,000 in my life. Oh, but you can open up a line of credits. Oh, how hard could it be to pay off a thousand measly dollars, right? So bad decision number one is we sit there and go, hey, let's apply for money we don't have and aren't getting anytime soon to buy this stupid little thing. (laughs) And we went through the process, and you know what? It actually ended up not working out. So I got to sleep on it. We went home. No beagle. I'm like, okay, sidestep that line. Even when I woke up that morning, I woke up kind of in regret going, man, I'm really glad to take care of a puppy. But then I kept searching the classifieds, and I found one that was much, much cheaper. And so now my wife and I drive down to like deep Orange County and we ended up buying a beagle. I ended up naming him Bucky and we take him home. And all we can sit there is like, oh, Bucky is so cute. And by the way, as much of a geek I am, before it became popular, I named him after the Winter Soldier. So as we go, as like, I'm like, oh, he's so cute. This is amazing. But how many of you guys have ever raised a puppy? Puppies are work. And there were, again, this is the second bad decision we entered because something my wife now and I didn't consider was the fact that our lives were crazy. We were in school. I was working here full time then. We were never home. And so in our, in our heads, the idea was like, oh, it would live in your house. It would live in my house. It'd be cute. And you send it with bows and all of that. <laughs> But I'm like, but who's going to take care of it? Because we're not around. See, and these are the things we weren't thinking of. All we were thinking of, oh, look how cute. This is great. You know, all this going on. But then it became time to actually take care of it. And we didn't last a month with it. What ended up happening was we were home late. on. I was at her house. It was late on a Friday. Her mom was uh, in her room. And I just hear her mom like give this scream of anger. And we're like, 
So we walk into her room, and what happens is the beagle ended up eating something he shouldn't have because we weren't watching him, we weren't home, and he got explosive diarrhea. And he decided to expel or share this in her mom's room on her pristinely white couch. You can't make this up, can you? And so here we are trying to clean, and we look at each other going, how did we get in this mess? We ended up giving the dog to a friend that was able to take care of it. But when I asked that question, what was the fatal flaw in our thinking? Many of you maybe have not been there with the exact thing of the pet, but what was the fatal flaw in our thinking was all we were doing is thinking in impulse. We were thinking in what I call the short term. How does this affect me now? Rather than thinking, hey, how does this affect me for the long term? Now, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, but just as human beings, have you ever noticed that our draw, that there's temptations every day to buy, to do what's called impulse shopping? If you're not familiar with impulse buying, impulse shopping, have you ever been at a Best Buy and you know when you go into the aisle to pay that they have all that crap that they have you there because they're trying to be like, you know what you need before you check out Airbud 4? You know, just buy this on impulse. <laughs> But if we're honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with myself now, looking back, especially when I was in college, the number one way that, dis, that, dis, that caused, that, excuse me, the number one thing that had impact on my decisions was impulse. Does this seem like a good idea now? Will this be a good idea now? And one thing I never thought of in many of my decisions as a young adult was, what is the impact going to be long-term of this decision? Is this decision going to equip me and give me something I need in the long-term? Because often we only think of the short-term and when we completely erase the long-term, we are not setting a foundation for our future. And what happens is then we give in to these impulses and we get to our future and we sit there and go, how did we get here? See, examples of impulse is, like I mentioned, impulse with finances. I can take this on credit. I can roll up this debt. I can buy the car or I can buy the stuff or I can buy the designer clothes. And you know what? It's okay because it's going to give me something I want now, whether it's accolades or status or whatnot. But I'm not thinking of the long-term effect. We make, this exa- we make this mistake often when it comes to our sexuality and dating. You know what? Like, this is going to feel good in the short term. Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's, I know I shouldn't be in this relationship. I know I shouldn't be flirting this way. I know I shouldn't be going down this path. But you know what? I like what I'm getting now, and I'm not thinking about the ramifications in the long term. Maybe it's even spiritually. God, like, I, I don't feel you. Like I felt you maybe like three months ago in that worship set. I don't feel you like I did there. And, and I, only, I need to feel you in that way or else I don't know how to make decisions. See, we could go on and on and on. But the reality is there's a flaw in our wiring as people. See, there's flaws in our wiring due to sin, which is rebelling against God. And when we were separated from God, we died. See, as Christ followers, as we've been brought back into the kingdom of God, as God is giving us a new life, then what we do is we now are reborn in Jesus. But what we want to do is we want to be aware of any flaws in our wiring so we could reconnect the circuits. And one of the flaws that all of us have is this idea to focus only on the impulses. 
But the reality is God's desire of us, God doesn't want you to be happy momentarily. God wants you to be set up to experience his best for eternity. See, God is our father, and I'm the father of three children. And my heart for my children is not for them to experience momentary happiness, but a lasting glory. And how I experience God's best blessings for my life is by seeking his leading and begin investing in my long-term future. And if you've been with Soma over the last several weeks, that's what the series Life 101 has been all about. This series has been about priorities. It's talking about not only what you need to survive college, but it's what you need to thrive in life. See, God's desire for us isn't simply to survive, but it's to thrive in his name. And when we start getting our priorities set, when we as young adults at 18, 19, 21, 22, 23, wherever you're at, if we begin to put in the effort and set this foundation, it is going to have long-term ramifications for the best. And so topics in this have included, Waz has been up here and he's talked about topics such as managing our time. He's talked about topics such as the way we view ourselves, image issues. We've had, had Dr. Hofke come up here. He's my tennis. We had Dr. Hofke talking about money and financials. You had a panel talking about how do you explore your calling. Those have all been amazing. And if you've missed one of those, I want to encourage you to check out the podcast. Just so you can continue to hear about this priority. And tonight, we're closing out this series by talking about one of the most important priorities of all, and that's the word relationships. How do we be a people that does relationships well? Now, I'm not talking about one specific kind of relationship. I'm talking about all relationships. There's romantic relationships, but there's also friendships. There's the fact that you are a son or a daughter to someone. There's the fact that you are a co-worker to someone. Maybe you're a co-athlete with someone. Wherever you go, we are, our world is a box of relationships, And what's interesting is, if you think about it, we were created by a relational God to be in relationship. Our natural desires is to be with people. Again, I have young children. I don't have to teach them to desire to be in relationship. That's part of their wiring. However, when sin came into this world, when we rebelled against God and that set everything off center, What happens is it took our natural desire and it twisted it. And so we naturally want relationships, but because of sin, we are naturally, I am naturally bad at relationship. Not just one kind of relationship, I am naturally bad at all relationships. Because when it comes to friendships, romantic relationships, being a son to someone, being a father to somebody else, what's my natural impulse? Self-centeredness. It's all about me. Give me what I want. Aloofness. I don't really care. I don't want to put in the effort to actually do anything to grow this relationship. Sometimes it's controlling. Hey, I'm going to, I'm in charge. I'm the general. I'm going to run this. I'm going to run this relationship, whether it's a friendship or anything else, like a dictatorship. Sometimes it's being obsessive. I need this. I want this. I desire this. This relationship will lead me to salvation. Again, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise hands, but can you relate to some of that? See, there's a flaw in our wiring, and so what we need to do as growing Christ followers is we need to stop 
and realize that we are seeking a type of relationship that cannot be accomplished in this world. See, there in your note sheet, I put a quote that I love from C.S. Lewis. He wrote in his famous book, Mere Christianity, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, for our purposes, we naturally have a desire for a type of relationship we're not going to find anywhere else. So we're looking for a supernatural type of relationship with the Lord. See, we could spend evenings talking about each individual relationship and how to do that well. And that can be an awesome thing for another time. But for our purposes, what I wanted to ask is, is there a through line in all of our relationships? Is there one thing that will have a definite impact in every relationship, no matter what it is? And it's Jesus. And you realize that that sounds kind of churchy, right? But it's true. See, sometimes in the church world, we try to overthink things. And we miss the beautiful simplicity of Jesus. And so hear me clearly on this truth. Our relationship with Christ is going to determine the direction of every other relationship in your life. Your relationship with Christ is going to determine the direction of every relationship in your life. The type of boyfriend and girlfriend, the type of husband and wife you will be. The type of friend you will be. The type of student you will be. The type of son or daughter you will be. The type of coworker you would be. Whatever it may be, that is all going to be determined by your relationship with Jesus because that is our ultimate relationship and how we approach that overflows into everything else. We are relational beings because we are created by a relational God to engage with him first. And so to put it in practical terms, I'm not perfect and none of us are, but I have the ability to have a healthy, thriving relationship with God. And if I am moving towards and developing and deepening a healthy relationship with God, then what will overflow into my other relationships will be health. But on the other side of that equation, if I have a poor, suffering, broken, apathetic, dead relationship with God, then that unhealth will overflow in effect all of my other relationships. And so if we will desire, which I'm sure there's nobody here that would go, you know what I want to be in life? I want to be sucky at relationships. If we desire to be a people that do relationship well, it starts by focusing on our ultimate relationship. See, sometimes we make this mistake that we try to divide our time evenly and kind of look at the five-fingered approach. Well, my friends get this percent, my relationship get this percent, my school gets this, and God's going to get this percent as well. But often the truth is God ends up getting pushed to the bottom. The reality is he's our ultimate focus and it affects everything else. Going into the dating example, there are certain phrases that Christians use a lot that make me laugh because I think we say them without knowing what they mean. And when it comes to dating, what you get is you got godly people that get into a relationship and the phrase they often say is, I want to learn how to do this right, or I want to learn how to do this God's way. And my response is, well, define that. What does that mean? Well, do it God's way. 
Do you know what doing any type of relationship God's way is? By doing our one-on-one relationship with him well first. If you want to date well, it doesn't start when you're in a dating relationship. It starts now. I marry a lot of couples here at Rocky Peak because they like having the saucy brown guy doing their ceremony. (laughs) And part of the process is that we do premarital counseling. And one of the things that I encourage them, like I often hear, hey, I want to be a godly husband or I want to be a godly wife. I'm like, awesome, that started five years ago. Because when you say your vows, nothing magical happens to you. You are still the same person you were. So if you desire to be a godly husband, then my question is, what have you been doing this whole time? If you desire to be a godly friend, what have you been doing this whole time? If you desire to be a godly coworker, what have you been doing this whole time when it comes to your relationship with God? See, the right relationship with God impacts our lives in huge, huge ways. And what I want to do this evening in scriptures, I want to take you to the Old Testament. And I want to show you one of my favorite, favorite examples. If you've heard me teach over years, you probably have heard me teach this scripture because I love the picture it paints of what a right relationship with God does. If you've got your Bibles or your apps, we're going to be in the book of Genesis, very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 39. And we're going to be looking at an event in the life of Joseph. Now, let me build a little bit of context as we're turning there. If you're not familiar with the life of Joseph, awesome, you're in the right place. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. 10 of those brothers were stepbrothers. See, Joseph was kind of platformed by his father. He shouldn't have been put in that position. His father loved Joseph and his brother Benjamin's mom more than the other mom. And so Joseph kind of became this favorite. He was given this coat of many colors. His brothers were very jealous. Joseph did let those go to his head a little bit. And so the brothers plotted to kill him. You think your family has problems? They plotted to kill them. They faked his death, left him in a ditch. One brother is like, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't kill him all the way. How about we just sell him into slavery? Because that's, that's a cheery alternative. So Joseph has now gone from the favored son that had everything to now he's been sold into slavery. And so our story is, is going to begin tonight as Joseph has been sold into Egypt. And so starting at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So let's stop right there. If you're newer to your Bible or if you're older to your Bible, one of the most important things we can do to have biblical literacy is to begin to read the Bible in context. What that means is we don't see it through Western eyes. What does this mean to me in 2016 in Simi Valley? But we see it, how would the original audience have understood these words? And so when you think about Potiphar, I surprisingly enough really like musicals. And there's a musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats. And when they show Potiphar, they make him out to be a doof. He's this little portly guy that can't do anything. And sometimes when we play him when we're kids in elementary school, Potiphar's always an idiot. That is not the Potiphar in context. See, as it says in the scripture, he was sold to the captain of the guard. If you were an Egyptian guard, that meant you were a brutal warrior. That meant you were war-torn, and he was the captain of the guard. In fact, one of the historians studying Potiphar would say that he, the the colloquial nickname for what he captained, he was the captain of the executioners. 
This was a harsh man. So imagine if you were a slave sold into his household. You are not being treated with warmth and respect. And look what happens. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Now I want to be clear about something. This was not a relationship that started in this moment. This was a relationship with the Lord that had been building. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with them and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time, from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So let's stop right there. This is an extraordinary turn of events. And in my opinion, it shows us our most powerful tool when it comes to evangelizing. If you've ever heard that word evangelism, that sounds like a very churchy word, doesn't it? It sounds like you should say it and lightning bolts should flash or something. And it sounds like there's a lot of this process or pomp and circumstance. I am going to go evangelize people at Moore Park. Or I'm going to go evangelize people at CSUN. But evangelism is being on mission. It's showing a world that doesn't believe it, that Jesus is real. Jesus loves us and he changes our lives. And many of us get scared because, well, what words am I going to use? What if I don't know the answers? What if I don't know this? And words are powerful, but the most important tool in my opinion, that you have in your evangelical belt is actually loving Jesus in your own lives. What was it about Joseph that got Potiphar's attention? It was his relationship with God. It was the fact that this slave was devout to something higher than him. This was a hardened man. This is somebody who believed likely in the gods of Egypt. This is somebody who had seen stuff. And here was the devoutness of this one man's faith. And Joseph wasn't devout because he had a place he could go attend worship. Not that that's wrong. He wasn't devout because he went to camp or a retreat or he listened to the new Bethel CD and none of those are wrong. He was devout because he had a choice to make and he chose to deepen his relationship with God and it impacted people around him. And so what ends up happening is that Joseph becomes the CFO of Potiphar's household. This is extraordinary. Understand something. If you're a football fan, I'm a Niner fan and we suck. So imagine it's like a team like the Niners who barely win at all, all of a sudden the next season having having an undefeated streak and winning the Super Bowl. That's what happened to Joseph. In fact, Potiphar not only saw the Lord through this, but he's like, I don't have to care. Potiphar's living the sweet life. I don't have to care about anything in my house. All I have to care about is food, which is the dream, right? All I have to care about is I'm hungry. Get something to eat. Everything else? Thanks, Joseph. Then the story gets a little stickier. Look at the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Man, if I was in the Bible, this is the description I would want of me, right? (laughs) For all of eternity, 
Joseph is well-built and handsome. I wonder how that conversation goes down in heaven with everybody else going, I didn't get that. (laughs) In verse 7, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph, sexually, she liked what she saw, and said to him, come to bed with me. So she's propositioned. First of all, she's pretty direct. She is not emotionally healthy. (laughs) But she's propositioning herself. Joseph, let's have an affair. Come sleep with me. But Joseph refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I then do such a wicked thing and sin against God? If you have your Bible and a pen, if you have an app that's capable of highlighting, would you highlight the end of that phrase? How then could I do such a wicked wicked thing and sin against God. What is Joseph's reason for not sleeping with Potiphar's wife? His reason is not, well, I don't want to break the rules because I'm afraid of the consequences. His reason is, I don't want to damage the most important relationships in my life. His reasons are relational. Why? Your husband trusts me. Why would I do anything to him? But the verse I had you underlined, but why would I do that to my God? Why would I allow myself to put a barrier between me and God? Why would I allow myself to drift even farther away from God when I'm enjoying a richness in him? Now understand, and this is pure speculation on my part, Joseph is a normal human being. Potiphar's wife likely was a very attractive woman. There's probably a part of Joseph that was tempted to an extent. But what did he choose? Relationship. Now, for our purposes, we're going to stop right here, but if you don't know how it continues to go, she kept propositioning him. He kept saying no. Then she finally accuses him of rape, and he gets tossed into prison. But again, the Lord is there. And if you are not familiar with Joseph's account, or it's just been a while, I would love to encourage you to keep reading through his story. But as we stop there, the question is, what do we learn from Joseph? We learn from Joseph that the short term is not nearly as important as the long term. If he had given in, who would have known? If he had given in, what would have happened? There was a lot of consequences that I'm sure he was facing, but to him, he was thinking of the long term. Man, this will hamper my relationship with God. Now think about what that tells you about his character. Think about what that guy will be in other relationships. If that's his character, what kind of friend do you think he is? We see later on what kind of family member as he sees, because he started as an arrogant brother. But then as he grew in his relationship with God, he became a restorer in his family. Think about eventually when he did get married, what kind of spouse was he going to be? What did his wife have to worry about? When it comes to Joseph, now was he a perfect man? No. But his ultimate relationship, he valued that so much and the impact it would have on his other relationships that he chose freedom rather than bondage. See, I think about it in my own marriage that I try to cultivate a marriage of trust. And my wife trusts me to keep her as my standard of beauty. 
And so when it comes to a temptation such as pornography, I could choose to give in to the short term because it is tempting. But what would that do to my relationship with my wife? That would add insecurity, that would add doubt, that would break trust, that would put us at a distance. Is it worth it? No. And when I look at it as that, see, often in the short term, we sit there and go, well, I'm missing out. I'm not getting this. I'm not getting this. But the reality in the long term is, but you can get something better. Do you want to settle for bronze? Or do you want pure gold that God wants to give you? See, and that's the power of focusing on Jesus. See, what I love about that is when we focus on Jesus as our ultimate relationship, then what it does is not only does it impact our own relationship, but it impacts our life. Because what that does, is that begins to give us confidence in our faith. See, we were not built to be Christ followers who are insecure about our standing with the Lord. We were built to have a holy confidence. And so many of us lack it because we don't invest in our ultimate relationship. See, many of us we think, well, I do these Christian things and that's good enough, but we're missing out on how rich it could be. See there in your note sheet, I put a quote that I really love where it talks about fake Christianity. Borrowed Christianity is the term he uses, is what you see when people talk about God and do stuff for God, but they rarely talk to God or spend time with him. It's a handed down kind of spirituality, handed down kind of spirituality, a circumstantial kind of faith. It depends on social events or certain people. It is in its good moments. It can be healthy or vibrant. In its bad moments, it is shown for what it often is, a weak and worthless faith. Hear me clearly, this is not the type of faith that we want overflowing into our other relationships. And so the amazing thing about God is he gives us the opportunity to write a new story when it comes to our relationships. There on the back of your note sheet, in 2 Peter, Peter is writing, what does a Christian transformed life look like? And I'm not going into all of the points, but I just love the first words that he says. He says, for this reason, make every effort. Who's holding the burden of responsibility in that situation? I am. See, you can't look at the cross and resurrection of Jesus and say that Jesus has not made every effort. And now it's my turn. And so if I want Jesus to be prioritized in my life, it's time for me to make every effort. If I want to have healthy relationships, whatever those relationships may be, then I need to make every effort efforts. And so to prioritize that, and so what I want to do with the time we have left there on the back of your note sheet, I want to talk about three key areas that strengthening our core relationship with Jesus will have an impact in ourselves and in all of our other relationships. So there on your note sheet, the overflow of our most important relationships impacts key, three key areas. The first one is this. When we prioritize Jesus, the first area that's impact is our emotional health. Now, this one gets spicy. Because I don't know about you, but I'll admit, I am a recovering, unhealthy, emotional person. And I think we all are to an extent. Emotions are not bad. 
That is not what I'm saying, and that is not what I'm vilifying here tonight. Emotions are a gift that the Lord has given us, but like any type of strength, when they're out of control and overblown, they become a weakness, they become detriment to us. And so what happens in our emotional health, and this is why it's a big one, is we begin to take relationships that are not our relationship with Jesus, whether they are dating or the desire for a dating relationship, whether they are friendships or they are career or they are whatever we look at it, they take these other earthly relationships and we idolize them and turn them into false gods. And what I mean by that is we begin to think that if only I have this, then I will find salvation. If only I have this person or this group of people, then I will be saved. Then I will have what I need. And what happens is we take these good things and we twist them and we choke the good out of them because we've turned them into idols. See, the danger in that is we end up living an emotionally unhealthy life that is completely unfulfilled because here's the truth that I've experienced many times in my own life. When we take God-sized expectations and put them on the shoulders of mere men and women, we will be disappointed. But when I make every effort to keep my king as the one and only king of kings, then it begins to put every other relationship into perspective. It begins to show me because he begins to call me out on things. He begins to grow me in areas. Several years ago, I was at a conference of a bunch of youth pastors and there was a naturally known youth pastor named Doug who was there with his wife. They were doing a married and youth ministry panel. And they were talking about their relationship and the things that they do to try to keep their relationship vibrant. And somebody had asked this cute question to the audience. It's like, hey, does Doug complete you? And people are like, oh, how sweet. And his wife, Kathy, kind of shot about it. She's like, you know what? No. And everybody kind of was like, what? And she went on. She's like, I love him. He is my most important earthly relationship, and he is definitely a priority in my life. But the only relationship that completes me is Jesus. And if I put him in that, then I'm going to fa- then he, I'm setting him up to fail. See, emotional unhealth creates idols. Emotional health in Jesus creates freedom. And we can begin to enjoy See, so questions you can ask yourself. We can often see if we're emotionally unhealthy by looking at our relationship with God. And so if and when you interact with God, here's a couple questions to ask yourself. What's your conversation like? Is your conversation with God kind of like talking to like a cosmic Santa? Here's everything I want. Give it to me and we're done. Do you seek answers or solutions to things in your life more than you seek the presence of Jesus? Do you only seek God when it comes to what we call camp pies or awesome experiences? These experiences are gifts. But is that really the only time I see the Lord move? See, how do we go from emotionally unhealthy to emotional health as we begin a pursuit of what's called the presence of Jesus? See, as a Christ follower, you are the temple. You are the place where the Lord dwells. He is with you. And if you think of other relationships in your life, how do you deepen those relationships? Well, you cultivate, you are present with them, right? 
You cultivate the presence of that relationship. And so one thing that's extraordinary that flipped the script in my life several years ago was when I stopped looking at God as a means to the end and I began looking at God as present and I want to get to know that presence. I just want to know him. And that changes things. And so practically, what does that look like? Hey, regularly, if you're starting off, I'm going to say once a week for like an hour. But regularly, why don't you get a way to spend some time with the Lord, but have no agenda? See, when I do this, I usually throw in like a day pack. I have my Bible, I have my phone with music, I have a journal, but I don't have a plan. And so what happens is I go and my simple prayer is this, God, I just want to be aware of your presence. Do what you will. And for some of you, maybe that's going to happen at a Starbucks. For some of you, it's going to be walking around your neighborhood. A lot of my prayer time always happens when I'm walking my dog. For some of you, maybe it's going down to the beach. For some of you, it's going to be sitting at the, shop, at the coffee shop in between classes at Season or Moore Park. But just having this time where I'm not here to push an agenda, I'm just here to understand more of your presence. I'm here to be aware of the fact that you are with me. I want to know your character. Recently in my life, over the last several months, the Lord's been working a big transition in my life as I'm retiring from the position I've held at Rocky Peak for 14 years, moving on to a different one here at Rocky Peak. And in that time, as I've wondered, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? The one thing the Lord kept bringing me back to in my times of prayer was just focus on who I am. God said, what's your character? You're good. You're a strong tower. You're salvation. And when I focus on that in my prayer life, what happens? I'm aware that that's who's with me. And that gives me a foundation I need. So the first area that focusing in our key, on our key relationship impacts is our emotional health. The second one is this. Wisdom in choices. Man, we live in a sucky world, don't we? Amen. <laughs> this world is messed up every day. At most moments, we are faced with temptations to revert back to our sin, aren't we? And so what happens is we need to begin to learn on our own how to make the right decisions, how to make a decision that's wise, how to make godly decisions. And so what happens when we deepen our relationship with Jesus, what that does is that makes us passionate for what Jesus is passionate about. And what Jesus is passionate about is you being free. See, I don't want to turn away from sin because I'm scared of breaking a rule or I'm scared of the consequence. I want to turn away from sin because I'm passionate about the freedom that Jesus has brought me. I want to turn away from sin because that'll put me in bondage that I don't need to feel. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I don't need that anymore. See, I don't want to look at running away from sin as deterrent. I want to look at his passion because God is passionate. See, again, I use the idea of Joseph. See, Joseph in victory was saying, no, I'm not going to break my relationship with God. In that relationship that he had cultivated, it gave him the strength to choose something else. See, sometimes we sit there when faced with temptation going, I'm just not strong enough. I don't have what it takes. If you are lacking what it takes, then what you need is a bigger dose of relationship with God. Because that's the presence we need. See, I often use the exact... I often use this example, and some of you heard me say it. How many of you have ever gone to like a Halloween Horror Nights or uh, like Not Scary Farm or something like that? See, I will never do that because I am a weenie. I hate being scared, and I hate paying for that. 
So I don't go see scary movies. I don't go to these things because I will cry. And I don't like to pay for something that makes me miserable. But if you do it, who do you go with? A bunch of people, right? Because one, you could probably outrun somebody that you're with. But two, the only reason you can get through it is because of the, is because of the group support, can't you? You're probably never going to walk through the like Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger maze by yourself. But if you're doing it like linked with people going, well, they can't kill us all, right? You know, as you go through, <laughs> that gives you the strength you need, right? In life, that is why our primary relationship is Jesus. Because faced in these temptations, we feel like we're alone, but that is a lie from the enemy. You are never alone. In your highest highs and in your darkest lows, you are never alone because the God that saved you is with you. And so whatever that temptation may be, whether it's a private one, whether it's over the computer, whether it's relational, whether it's sexual, whether it's cheating, whether it's integrous, whatever it may be, God is with you to show you there is another way. And I become more aware of that when I deepen my relationship with him. And how, one way that I can deepen that is through what's called accountability. See, many of you are involved in a life group. Many of you have a group of people that you can be accountable to. Now, accountability often sounds like something really scary, doesn't it? But accountability is getting together with a group of people who are passionate about freedom. And you're saying, you know what? I want to do, make every effort to protect my most important relationships. And so I have some blind spots and I want your help. Do you see when you flip the script how freeing accountability sounds? hey, I am doing this because I'm going to make every effort to protect my relationships. In fact, not just my present ones, but my future ones. And the last feeling is this. It affects our commitment. One of the biggest things that breaks my heart that the enemy has done in our world is that he has convinced us that relationships are something we quit on. And many of us have suffered the pain of that. We see that in families where many, many people come from a one-parent household. We see that in dating relationships or friendships. Man, when the going gets tough, somebody's out. We see that in our relationship with God or our relationship with the church, don't we? We're fine with God or we're fine with Soma until something happens, until life happens, and then rather than trying to resolve or deal with it, we're out. That's not how this works. See, the reality of relationships, relationships are going to have ups and relationships are going to have downs. And if we want to be a people, if we want to grow to be a people that can weather the ups or downs, because that's the reality of this world. But we learn to do that first and foremost with Jesus, because sometimes walking with Jesus is amazing. Sometimes it's really, really difficult. He gave us lament in the Psalms on his people going, what the heck, God? Did you forget me? Do you not care about me? God didn't forget and accidentally let that slip into the Bible. God put that in the Bible to show us that ups and downs happen, but he is with us. See, if you've heard me preach before, you heard me get on my soapbox about this, Disney movies lie to you. Because what happens at the end of the Disney movie? There's a conflict, they resolve it by murdering someone, and then the words flash on the screen, happily ever after. And you think, oh, they're happy forever, never had conflict now, but I bet you Ariel and Prince Eric argued over dinner with her going, why don't we ever see my family? So you sit there, 
and go, that is real life. And so if I want to learn how to weather the ups and downs, if I want to be a person that does not quit on my relationships, the only way I will learn to do that is by learning from the one person who is guaranteed to never quit on me for all of eternity. To learn from him how to be in the storm. And again, how that comes about it's by just reading what he's already done. By opening up his word with your favorite beverage. By reading through a plan on your life, uh, on, on your version apps. By doing a devotional with somebody, anything, but by spending time with him going, this is my God. This is who is present with me. He is here. And so I'm going to invite the band to come on up. But as I do that, as we wrap up our night, I just want to ask you one final question. As you think about Peter's words, make every effort, what does make every effort look like in your life right now? See, my hope is that this isn't a message that made us feel warm fuzzies tonight, but that this is something we put legs to as we walk out of this place. And so what does make every effort look like to you? What is that going to mean for your time? What is that going to mean for the amount of time you interact with God? What is that going to mean for certain relationships? Is there certain things that you know, hey, making every effort means I need to pull back from this because this isn't healthy. Making every effort means I need to maybe break off something because it's not healthy. Or I need to say, I'm going to come in for less hours this week or I'm going to make a different commitment. What does make every effort look like in your life? Because we are not perfect people, but we can run with confidence that Jesus has given us because he has given us all that we need, his presence to be a people that confidently say, I am making every effort to have good relationships. Let's pray. Father, we are not here to simply listen. We are here to act and do. Father, we are here to follow your example because you didn't just talk a big talk. You came and your actions backed everything up. Father, we want to be a people that are getting encouraged or getting fired up and passionate here on Sunday night. And we want to be a people that are walking out and living that out in our, every, in our everyday lives. Father, we desire to do all of our relationships well. And we know that that's going to be impacted by the overflow of our relationship with you. I pray if there's any aspect that you're showing us that we're falling short or we're not where we need to be. You're not showing us that because you want to shame us. You're not showing us that because you want us to live in failure. You're showing us that because you are giving us an opportunity to choose something deeper. Father, in your name, I pray those words over this college ministry that we be a people that make every effort, that that be our battle cry, that that be our, that that be our commitment, that we are going to make every effort, whether that means waking up a little bit early to spend time with you, whether that means listening to you and your word on the drive to work or school, whether it means taking half an hour and getting away just to be with you alone, whether it means making a hard decision by putting on some brakes or by pulling back from a desire we had. See, God, you don't ask us to do this because you want us to miss out. You want your children to experience the best that you have for us. 
Father, I pray a deeper awareness of your presence over our lives. I pray that we sit there and go, I may not always have the answer to the what or the why when it comes to my life, but I know the who that is Jesus that is with me always. Father, we commit to you to make every effort because you have made every effort. We commit to be a reflection of you in how we live our lives. As we sing this final song, this is our declaration that Jesus, you have us, you have won us, and we will live for you. In your son's name, we all declare this. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.